0: On this new series of the Ivy Entrepreneur Podcast, you're invited to listen in on the guest visits to my Hustle and Grit class taking place virtually at the Ivy Business School. Hustle and Grit is a course that we created to teach you everything that you didn't learn in business school, in business school. In it, we invite world-class innovators and entrepreneurs to talk about topics like motivation, how to learn, what to prioritize, and even how to be happier. In these episodes you'll hear live audio from my classes because honestly there's just something different about the energy excitement and honesty taking place in a live classroom environment so get comfortable grab a seat and don't worry unlike my real class i won't cold call you enjoy i am excited to have one of the hardest working entrepreneurs i know joining us today so she's made some time to talk about a bunch of topics but we're going to focus on ideation as well as making the entrepreneurial leap please everybody put your virtual hands together for one Rachel Zimmer Rachel are you with us
1: I am hey everybody and Eric thanks for having me
0: yeah of course happy to have you I'm going to cancel the spotlight so you don't have to look at me the whole time um, Rachel, they got a bunch of questions, uh, pouring in, but, uh, and we will get to a handful of those questions. So keep populating, but I, I think it would make sense if we started with sort of your entrepreneurial story and even rewinding back to when you were a student and how you sort of made the decision to do something else before jumping into entrepreneurship. So let's rewind and start with your story.
1: Amazing. Um, And so I'm happy to be as candid and open as I can be. So any questions, feel free to to throw them my way. Um, But going back to my route, so I was a Queen's Commerce grad. Don't hold it against me, Ivy folks. But we, you know, at school had a ton of really great opportunities to meet other people that were like-minded. And so in my fourth year of school, landed a job at J&J. And so I think it was September, October timing that I'd had a job lined up for, for after school and my friend um, at the time, Graham Warsawski, was like, "Great! Like we both landed jobs. And um, there's all these competitions. Do you wanna? Do you wanna maybe enter some of them? And so some of them were like top ad exec, means Marketing Association conference, among, amongst a bunch of others. And so you know, uh, very lame and nerdy students we were. We were like, all right, let, let's take, a, let's take a shot at them." And so we started entering the competitions and, and learned that we had an amazing working dynamic we challenged each other we had a ton of fun we drove each other crazy and would just you know, push each other to the max and need to walk away. But essentially what what we learned was that we were a really powerful and winning team. So we won cars through top ad, we won a bunch of cash, we won big Unilever competition. And so at a certain point we're like, huh, there's there's something here. So it went on after Queens um, and we both landed at Johnson and Johnson. And and I'll kind of interject with your first question, which was, you know, why did we choose the traditional, why did I choose the traditional career path um, right out of school? And it was hard. Yeah, Francis, we won. You should all do it. Top ad exec through um, through Mac. So there's many different competitions. Once you're in fourth year, third year, even you can you can start entering them. So you know that's where we learned we were uh, we were a really good team. Um, But in our fourth year, you know, it it was a hard choice to to take um, and to choose to pursue a more traditional path and, you know, crazy delusional millennial, I wanted to travel and go into more debt um, and just go see the world and or do something entrepreneurial And, and some really good advice from some alum from Queens that were a few years older that just said, go get, you know, a handful of years in a good traditional, you know, whether it's the accounting stream or finance stream or marketing stream, just to learn the basics of the working world. And I'm so appreciative that I did that because there's things that you just don't realize, you know, how to go on a business trip with your coworkers, how to write a good email, how to, you know, fuck up in a meeting and then how to bounce back from it. All these different nuances that you learn in your, you know, in your first couple years of working. And, you know, I'm, I'm grateful in retrospect that I went to, you know, a big company that kind of beat some of that to me but at the time it was kind of a you know on one hand privilege to have an opportunity on the other hand a bit of rest, a bit of restlessness of just wanting to start doing something entrepreneurial and or travel and see the world adventurously and you know write out So landed at J&J and, you know, learned a ton, learned, I was fortunate to work on brands like Tylenol, Aveeno, and, you know, digestive health acquisition, so some big big projects, Um, but while there, what was so great, uh, in addition to great training and learning from really brilliant people, was getting exposure to a lot of industry problems. And I'd say that was, you know, the biggest thing that I took away from that time, which was there were so many interesting problems and uh, just waiting to be solved. And so during that time, Bram and I would spitball ideas, weekday evenings, weekends, over lunch at work, and we came up with a whole bunch of wacky ideas. And so we ended up choosing this one idea, and um, Five Crowd, that we ended up pursuing. And I can, you know, in future questions, I can go into how we landed at Five Crowd um, in this in this business concept. But we ended up deciding to launch this company because we felt the pain ourselves as um, you know as users at J and J, and the pain was that um, traditional ad agencies were taking a long time and were very expensive to do really basic simple things like it would cost 50k and take two months to you know modify some banner ads stuff that now is ludicrous, but back in 2010, and um, when we first entered the working world was just um, was just commonplace, so ended up choosing to launch um, a premium freelance um, platform targeted in the marketing and creative space world. We essentially bootstrapped or revenue-funded our company, and we scaled it to be 20 people at, at, at a certain point between software developers and customer success and BD. And then we were approached to exit, um, which we were not for sale, but when we learned about the opportunity, we were approached to exit um, in 2016. So our whole start, startup journey was two years and nine months. Very, very, very quick. Um, and I look back at that time with some of the fondest, fondest memories in, in my life. And then thereafter, I'll be much quicker on this part, um, worked for our acquiring company for um, about three years um, in and in a variety of leadership roles at our parent company. So, led customer service and um, so had 800 um, customer service folks around the world, you know, led some of our digital transformation efforts. Um, and then also on the side was an entrepreneur in residence at the DNZ, and coaching and mentoring some tech startups uh, across a variety of industries so that's that's a bit about me in a a nutshell
0: so that is uh awesome but I, i do want to rewind because this class is on we're focusing on ideation and so we are going to get into how you think about it now as an investor or advisor at entrepreneur first but i want to rewind how how if you don't mind spending a little bit more time on how did you identify that five crowd was the thing worth leaving a stable job at J&J for? Like where did the initial like, oh, that's a pain in the butt come from?
1: Yeah. And Eric, I flipped you a graphic if it's not too much trouble to throw it up. um, And I don't think I've shared this graphic with anybody. So guys don't, it's very embarrassing, but it's, it's a fun one. So let me see if I can project it. Perfect. So basically, what we did is we were spitballing over drinks, different ideas, and on weekends. And essentially, we had five different business ideas that we thought were really great. Some of them were absolutely terrible. I'll tell you about two of them. So on the far right, Dollar Condom Club. The so Dollar to- Condom Dollar Club. Condom Club. So there was it was the rise of Dollar Shave Club, and then the dollarization of everything. And we're like, wait a minute, imagine there's a box that shows up at your door. So we thought this was brilliant for a hot minute. And um, thank God we did not pursue that one. And then crazy twenty. 2 year olds um, the second one, ESD, is Epic Snack Drawer. So we were constantly hungry at work, and we're like, imagine there's a drawer of snacks that just automatically refills, which was a great idea. And, and, you know, lo and behold, years later, there's been the rise of like the HelloFreshes and the chef's plates, which are more on the consumer side. But at the time, we're like, this is, everyone's hungry, this is brilliant, we'll sell them to corporate companies. Um, and then the other two, I, I, will go, I won't bore you with the details of them, but we spitballed all these different ideas, and then we came up on the left side with our own criteria as to what would make an idea and um, effective now looking back at 22 year old me I'd probably critique some of these questions that we had for ourselves uh, but this is the raw circa 2011 2012 graphic that I that I pulled and so some of the questions just to double click on them you know is it a product instead of a service can it scale easily you know do we have a good understanding of what it takes to close the sales funnel you know are we the right people to actually tackle this problem and so when we looked across these questions at the time we equally weighted all of them and workload on the far left now five crowd is what it was we renamed it to and was the highest scoring points and so once we had gone through this ideation process you know rated and discussed them all across our criteria it was quite methodical and that's that's when we landed at workload Slash five crowd um, and we brainstormed on it for about a year before we actually went through and, and quit our jobs. And um, I had my resignation letter written, fun, fun fact, and um, for almost a year. So it was something that I was humming and hawing and saying like, oh, we just need to do it full time. We're not making the traction that we need, that we need to but there were a couple things that we we continued to push ourselves to say can we de-risk this just a little bit more while we're working full-time can we do a little bit more customer discovery to validate the problem can we you know use the competitive platforms like the upworks fiverr, Fivers, fibers 99 designs of the world to figure out what's working on them and not so we did spend quite a bit of time once we landed on this concept doing some of that customer discovery friends and you know strangers that we ask for interest to in the industry plus also you know really really double down on um, that competitive piece and in, in getting to know those platforms so hopefully this is helpful because i kind of see you know it, it's kind of art with the science but more just gut because you try and apply something scientific to it and at the end of the day you know you need to have crazy conviction around what you're doing and um, and, and have a passion for what you're solving
0: Awesome. So this is helpful, and I, I wanna I wanna double click on a few of these specifically. So workload at the time came from presumably you were at J and J, and you were the one actually that would go back to these agencies to request these small changes. And we're seeing how much you were getting charged for them. Is that where workload specifically came in?
1: Yeah, you got it. And it's specific to my co-founder, Bram. So he had to edit a 60-second video to 15 seconds. And not too long before we were scrappy students working on, you know, competitions where we were hiring people on Fiverr. And so we knew what was possible there. And then to have a quote to get a video edited from 60 seconds to 15 seconds to take months, Instead of hours, and then tens of thousands instead of hundreds of dollars, that was where he was head scratching. Pulled me over. I had scratched, and I mean, I at the time I had like a 12 year old, 13 year old brother who could use iMovie. I was like, let's just ask my brother Dave. He can, he can do this for us in 20 minutes versus versus hiring a traditional agency. So, so exactly to your point, we were the customer. And when I look across the other ones, I mean, some of them more so than others. I'll say we were the customer. Epic snack drawer. We were absolutely very hungry. Like that is true. By like three o'clock in the afternoon. Noon, we were like this is this is the one this is the concept we know that there's something here
0: so every day at three o'clock you were like we have to do this is the idea this is the one
1: <laughs> You got it we should have just we should have just went to Costco and stuffed our drawers but anyway yeah we, uh, we, we felt that so so i definitely felt it but then i will say since then i've done other customer discovery where I haven't been the customer and um, you know since then in, in other you know projects in my life and so I don't think you have to be the person that experiences it but i do think having a right to win and why you from unique exposure or unique learnings is incredibly valuable to you know to to actually go to market
0: cool so a few that we uh we just touched on before you joined so does it play in a really big market we say is it in a big sandbox so is there a really big opportunity such that if you needed to pivot or change the idea then it could still be viable you're still big in the same market so that's overlaps with what we talked about does it leverage your networks so um in at ivy we talk about the idea of effectuation, so sort of using your assets in order to come up with a business idea that it works sort of given your skill set network uh, assets whatever, so does it leverage your network that's you had an unfair advantage in that you're the right people to do it, presumably because you bram that was part of his day job right like he he was seeing it that's cool um, I'll
1: expand Eric jumping in on that one and- yep. Yeah. So I think that a right to win can come in a lot of ways, right? A right to win can be you are the user yourself. It can be um, a relationship that you have. It can be a technical skill set that you bring. And interestingly, while at Johnson & Johnson, because we felt the pain and the pain was so big, it went viral throughout the organization. And so when we actually chose to leave J&J, they actually became our first customer. That was how we revenue funded it. So we had an employer that had such strong conviction conviction in the problem we were solving, which A, validated it was a really big problem if so we could solve it. And then secondarily, I mean, that was an unfair advantage, right? Anyone else starting didn't have that, you know, significant SaaS revenue that was then pulling us forward. So so I just share that because, you know, if anyone enters the workforce, has a great full-time job, there's no reason why you can't be, I hate the term, but be an entrepreneur, text it out there. And then if it doesn't work internally, you know, bring them along for the journey and have them be a founding client.
0: Yeah, that's great. And then uh, the last one before we move on is the problem. Are you passionate about solving the problem? I like your part B, which is, could you see yourselves doing it 10 years in the future? I think any business that's worth doing, you have to think about yourself being in it for probably a decade. And I like to think about even are these customers that I could see myself spending time with for the next 10 years, because realistically, you're going to be serving your customers and you're going to be taking calls from them at 10 p.m. on a Friday or 2 a.m. on a Monday. You know These are the customers that you're going to have to spend a bunch of time with. So we'll talk about passion in a future class, but I like to also think about are these customers that you could see yourself serving for 10 years? Okay, cool. I, I noticed that you didn't have any threes here, but two, is it is the market problem a need versus a want? How did you reconcile that one and end up making the leap?
1: Hmm. So uh, there are two two things. So the need piece was when we started sharing, hey, we're feeling this with the other people we knew at other organizations, everyone was you know, having that same aha moment. And there was actually a book that came out called Madison Avenue Manslaughter, where there were exposés on the ad world and the margins that people were taking, the yacht trips that were happening on weekends. And so there was a huge industry recognition that was we were just at the cusp of. So that was the why that was part of the why now. Why now was one on the technology side, the rise of the gig economy and then the second piece was the industry was was awakening to it. And the relationships that were at the top to top on the agency and the client side, they were being overridden by the rise of procurement. And you know, after the 2008 um, financial crisis, the rise of procurement had really had a huge huge impact. So I think that that's kind of part one to it and and I'm trying to think of if there was an Oh, and then and then right, uh, and then I'd say the second thing for why leave um, and actually take a jump in doing it. So I had my resignation letter for letter written for twelve months on my desktop, ready to go. Uh, do I print it, uh, You know what I mean? Like that constant feeling that we were ready, but just not quite ready. And I had spoken to a friend mentor at the time, and he had said. You know, Rachel, um, sometimes the riskiest thing to do is actually to stay in your current gig, because you can always go back. And lo and behold, when I did resign from J&J, they were wonderful and supportive and said, hey, we're going to, you know, we're bought into your problem. We're interested in being a customer. And then secondarily, they had shared if it doesn't work out, you know, you're, you're welcome to come back. And so I think you know, for people that are high performing and have a drive to win and have delivered in their roles, and you know have 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 really shown that, and you know I know, and that and I don't think we were special in that. I know a number of other entrepreneurs where, as they were leaving, there was that open door of you know if it doesn't work, um, feel free to come back. So. I just bring that second point up of sometimes the riskiest thing is not to try because that ladder is always there. You can always keep ascending it, but to actually go out, tinker, fail, try and succeed, that that's something that as you go on in your career, the opportunity cost just gets larger and larger and larger.
0: Yeah. And so you de-risked it because you, I guess you knew Bram, you had worked with him before you'd piloted, you've worked on projects with him. You knew that you worked well together. You validated it. It fit all of your criteria. You just knew at some point you wanted to leave. Like J&J, you knew in your mind was sort of a shorter term thing. Or was there a, a, a version of your life where you could have been at J&J for the, your entire career?
1: So no, it's a great question. And, and it's getting a bit personal now. So in my life, I always feel like I need to have meaningful relationships in whatever way they come, great adventure, and then to feel insanely challenged. And those can come in any way, shape, or form. So adventure could have come, I was actually t- trying to go abroad with J&J and working in an emerging market. So I was really interested in India or Brazil. So if I had stayed at J&J and had an incredible adventure career-wise with them doing that, that would have been something that would have really appealed to me, or taking the entrepreneurial path, which both of those really would have checked that, that adventure slash challenge box. So to your question, like I think I'm, I- I'm always been the type of person of kind of planting a bunch of seeds and see which one sprout and when, and then just being really opportunistic around you know always saying yes listening to different opportunities putting myself out there to try and stumble into some luck and then you know hopefully hopefully finding some some great uh, adventures along the way
0: cool so then you left you said it was revenue funded so J&J was your first one of your first customers Yeah. Awesome. So had your customers lined up, had your business partner figured out, uh, had you said you had started working on it sort of on the side to try to validate it before you ended up leaving. Then how did you know, like after you left, how did you know what to do first? Like inevitably, like there's inevitably this overwhelm of my gosh, now I'm no longer collecting a paycheck. How did you know what to focus on?
1: I mean, the reality is we didn't. We made a lot of mistakes out the gate. Um, one mistake, fun fact, incorporate ASAP. So that's something that a lot of people wait to do. The Canadian banks and our government really value time based um, aspects to a company. So grant opportunities, banking opportunities, as soon as the clock starts is really valuable. So feel free to incorporate now, even if you're working on a future idea, so you can ride some of those two year opportunities. But what I'd actually say is that J taught us a lot about focus. Um, identifying a problem, building out a plan that's going to solve that problem. And I think the biggest thing to know, and, and you know, I, working with companies at the DMZ afterwards is, time is your most precious resource and it's not infinite. So how do you really figure out what are your three things you're going to accomplish in a month basis, week basis, whatever timeframe makes sense for you at that stage of your company. And early days, it was what are we doing today? Okay, here are the three things we're going to get done. Over time, it became okay. This month, we need to get X, Y, and Z done. And um, but I think being focused at a strategic level of what are the three things, and then constantly recognizing when you need to to iterate on that. So so examples with Five Crowd, um, our three things in year in our first six months, let's say were. 100 percent customer satisfaction so we recognized that we only had one reputation and at the end of the day you're going to screw stuff up especially in a new company but you have to make sure that you make it right and take care of them and learn from it and make sure that their you know expectations are set that you are new and you're going to be learning and then as a family clients there's pros and cons you can help infuse you know thoughts and ideas into the product on the flip side you're gonna have to fumble with us as we go. So I think you know, one was 100% customer satisfaction. The second was just getting throughput. So we knew that we just needed to get work to freelancers so that we could learn what's needed, what features are needed, what features exist in competitor products versus what we think is needed. One example is that um, if you looked at, at the time, Elance now Upwork, and um, if you factored in exchange rates, it was about 25% of a currency exchange rate. So 25% fees charged if we were a Canadian client working with a European freelancer. So once you start under, and those were just learnings that we didn't realize until we actually just get it, getting throughput onto the platform. So that was number two. And then we, our third one was cash is king, dollar sign on the cash, and that was this idea. Everyone says, um, you know, the cash flow is key, but, no, but like cash flow is really key because you, in, in our world, we were servicing Fortune 1,000 clients that had net payment terms of 180 days. Right, So, AKA, from when we're done working together, you're gonna pay us in six months as you're you know, putting work with our freelancers. And our freelancers were paid in 30 days. And so we had a huge cash flow. We, we, That was like a catastrophic thing talking to investors. They're like, you're doing what with how many people? You're floating what for who? And so, I mean, at the end of the day, the throughput allowed us to learn and iterate and, and solve that problem in, in a variety of creative ways. But those three goals and then figuring out what tactics we needed to do in that first six months was really, really valuable. And we always had this bucket called operational weeds. And there's all this stuff when you start a company that you don't realize, whether it's finding an office, whether it's getting an HST number, whether it's all these ridiculous things that just come up that we just knew, all right, that they're probably in the like 10 to 20 hours a week that goes to this annoying stuff, but it's gonna to have to get done. So hopefully that sheds a bit of light to the ways we thought about it at the beginning. And then over time, those three goals evolved and our team, You know, if we stopped them in the hall, they'd be able to rattle them off, whether it was a developer or, or a customer success person.
0: Yeah, it seemed like your team, correct me if I'm wrong, Rachel, I feel like this was either a dream or a real thing. We shared an office for a while, correct?
1: We did. So this is a fun story. Eric and I, we, we worked out of Tangerine Bank.
0: Yeah, right.
1: A brilliant, I don't know why Tangerine did this because they, they right. didn't offer business um, business accounts, but we paid 100 Canadian per month to have our whole team in this office at Young and Shooter. So that's where yeah we, we got to know each other quite well.
0: Right. It, it always just struck me that your team seemed so organized. It was very early days for me at Intellitix. And I just always looked at your team and thought, man, it just seems like at least you did a good job of pretending like you knew what you were doing and that you had your stuff together. So.
1: Pretending. Yeah, can't you did a good job. Work. of pretending. <laughs>
0: at least, well, from the uh, if if you say that you felt disorganized and it was trial and error, at least from an outsider's perspective, it felt like watching you and Bram, that it was very calculated and that you had you know very clear plan very clear goals and we were executing on it so i always looked to you as two that seemed to have it together even if it didn't feel like that in your mind it seemed like that from the outside okay,
1: appreciate
0: um okay so fast forward company ultimately was acquired by sgs what was not the plan you said that like on your criteria didn't fit the company that was easy to exit box so what what happened there
1: so Again, a personal thing. So fun, profit and scale have always been an impact. Sorry. So fun, profit, scale and impact have all been very big personal motivators. And Bram and I often would, you know, pause and assess, how are we doing on the fun part? You know, is this a slog? Are we waking up every day and dragging our feet? Is what we're doing profitable? Is it scalable? And then finally, are we having an impact on the world? And I've always had that like social impact piece that's been a huge part of my personal goals. And so we weren't for sale. We were delusional millennials that were building a billion dollar Silicon Valley company, went down to the Valley once once a year or so, and um, you know, really immersing ourselves there. And, and essentially what happened was, as we learned more about SGS, and as they got to know us, we realized how the sum of our parts is greater than the whole, right? So like, I think that it was very, very clear that if we brought the two together, A, we'd be able to access their 3,000 clients, which was huge. We'd be able to bring a huge amount of work to meaningful freelancers around the world. And that's essentially what happened. Obviously, there were were learnings and things that, um, you know, were tough through an acquisition. But on the flip side, Walmart.com was a huge customer of SGSS, And we brought, we, um, I think in our second year, we're writing something like 100,000 copy descriptions for all of their products on their site. So when you so when you look back at okay, impact the scale piece, um, you know the acquisition definitely checked those boxes and was able to bring work to freelancers, which ultimately was you know which ultimately was our vision and what motivated us. So hopefully that helps to to answer it.
0: Yeah. Uh, okay. So fast forward, you are now at Entrepreneur First we know a little bit about the organization, but maybe you can wrap it up a little bit. What does it do? And then the reason why I thought it was super interesting to bring you on is because that you've sort of come up with the idea and executed on the idea from an entrepreneur's perspective. And an entrepreneur, first, it's different in that you invest in the people and then come up with or help them come up with good ideas. So a lot of the questions that I'm seeing from students are around how do you figure that out? How do you help them? coach them to the right idea. So big question, what is entrepreneur first? And then we'll talk about how you, your process and then how you help them come up with cool ideas.
1: Yeah, great, great question. And a lot of people thought um, our founders were crazy back in 2011 when they started, because essentially their idea was, we're going to pay people to quit their jobs. We're going to put them together and then invest in them. And so, obviously, out the gate, um, you know, there was a lot of, like, uh, head, head turns, And um, but essentially what happened was they did just that. They brought 50 individuals together twice a year, and now Toronto is the sixth location, and these individuals are truly exceptional. So, you know, absolutely extraordinary, and I can tell you more about, about what we look for, but this is the, the best of the best in the country, and we look for people that have insane high potential. So we look for folks that are, you know, crazy driven, and um, that have that ability to, to grow and we can help accelerate it. So what we do is we look for those individuals, we bring them together in a cohort, and the cohort's comprised of CEO profiles and CTO profiles. And then we essentially let the magic unfold. So we help to facilitate through a lot of you know, frameworks, which I can share a bit more about, and, and team building, and then essentially everyone pairs up in the cohort at the end of 13 weeks they then pitch to us very much like Dragon's Den and then we may have the decision uh, of whether or not we invest and our investment terms are 100K Canadian in exchange for 10% of the company. So from the beginning of the program, you don't have a co-founder, you don't have an idea, you're getting paid 3,500 Canadian per month as a stipend. 13 weeks in you pitch to us and you basically have a million dollar valuation. Second part of it is at that point, uh, it's more of a traditional incubator where we help you go to market and raise institutional funding. So that's a, That's a bit about us. And the, and the only other, other thing I'll share is, is maybe why I wanted to join Entrepreneur First. You know, I, I definitely have another chapter or two of being an entrepreneur. And I absolutely, Bram and I at some point will, will join forces again and, and be crazy and have a ton of fun, you know, having impact in some kind of space. But what I loved about EF is that when you, when you look at Toronto in Canada, we have an incredible, incredible pool of talent, but we have this profile and, and stereotype of being a bit more risk averse. You know, without that structure, it's hard for us to take the leap. And so what I loved with EF is that we can find the best people that have not yet started companies and help give them a time boxed and structured way to take a shot on themselves. And if it doesn't work, no problem. You go back to a J and J, you go back to a bank, you go back to wherever you were before. And so I just thought it was perfect for the Canadian profile. And it's such an exciting space that we don't really have any other offerings in our market around pre-idea, pre-company, pre-co-founder. So I just thought I just saw the opportunity and how impactful it would be um, it would be for Toronto and Canada.
0: Yeah, awesome. Okay. So then what is that process? How do you so you you I get how you pick the people, you put them together and how the compensation and valuation works. How do you coach them to the right idea? Do you offer them criteria or the boot camps? Give us a peer into the EF program. What What do you do to help them come up with the right idea?
1: So we believe very strongly in what we've called our edge framework. So essentially what that is, is we, we profile four different types of archetypes and we structure our cohorts to have these four profiles. So i will kind of talk through them because it's the way that we approach ideation. So the first is a technical edge. So this is someone who's maybe, you know, zero to two years out of their PhD, they've got really cutting edge, forward thinking research that can game change an industry. So that's, you know, a, a pretty typical technical edge that would likely be a CTO. The second technical person is um, what we call a catalyst doer. So this is an individual that can build, they can lead and, you know, they can command followership and they likely have some work experience, you know, potentially at a startup or at a lab. And, um, you know, they they maybe don't have the same very deep technical expertise, but they've got broad and broad experience from a building perspective and they're the best in their field. The other two are more of our CEO profiles, and one is what we call a catalyst talker. So it sounds sounds kind of funny, but it's somebody who can catalyze the business through customer discovery, operations, sales, all that kind of stuff. Most of our, I'd say almost everyone in in the cohort is is somewhat technical. So, and the technical could be you just read a ton of stuff in the tech space. It could be, you know, you've tinkered on projects outside of work, but there is some, or maybe your undergrad was in in something technical, but, but usually we, you know, we find that. Or CEOs that have a bit of a technical um, understanding just perform better from, a, from an investment and company standpoint. The final, call it edge that we look at is um, what we call domain expertise. So this could be someone that has years of experience in a specific field. Maybe they've worked at all different banks and they know the ins and outs of the, you know, the banking system and have a right to win because of their unique domain expertise. And so when we look at these edges and the composition within our cohort, we, we use the analogy of poker and we say, you know, everyone probably has, you know, a set of different cards that you could play, but the key is figuring out what's your highest card, what's your ace, and then what's someone else's ace. So when you bring them together, you're very, very differentiated. And part of what has attracted such great investors to EF, so we're backed by some of the world's best investors like Greylock Partners, Reid Hoffman, the co-founder of LinkedIn, our fund's $140 million. Part of what's attracted them is that they've said, huh. You take two very strong people that you've pre-vetted for crazy drive to achieve, their ability to commercialize things, all the personality stuff and ability stuff. And when you bring the two together, and it's almost IP in itself, because the two individuals are so competitive that when that comes together and you start talking about your interests, when you start talking about your experiences, um, because they're so different, yet they're your ace in each of the hands, quite often the ideation actually comes quite naturally. So we view that ideation and team building are symbiotic and actually go hand in hand. Final thing I'll share on this is that through our program in the 13 weeks, we believe very, um, I'll use a bad term with it, we believe very um, strongly in monogamy, like stay with one co-founder, go deep and test that relationship, like crazy and then break up if it's not working so we do not advocate for having like five conversations going on at a time by the end of the first week of the program about 90 percent are actually in their co-founder teams and then it usually takes four to five formations and breakups before you actually get to your your strong and the the strong winning team
0: interesting uh the edge framework is that something that's unique to you or is that
1: yeah so that that is proprietary um to EF but I'd say like we've got a ton of information out there on it I think our co-founder Matt just did something on invest like the best um, kind of speaking to that framework and how um, you know those aces and when you look at the the cards that you potentially have how that really becomes the foundation for for your skill set the one thing I'll share is we have had people that have I'll, I'll pick on one specific story people that have maybe worked in law for 10 years or have you know worked in a specific industry and they're like great I'm an EF. I want nothing to do with law this is going to be my ticket to get out of law and what we'll often say is like, you're crazy. Your competitive advantage and your right to win is in the legal space. Like you gotta double down. As much as you might wanna leave, this is not the avenue to do it, right? And so and that specific example ended up being a co-founder that is you know, one of our most successful companies. And he's like, all right, I guess I'll do my legal thing. I guess I know the space, no. Um, but we, we really try and push and encourage folks to think about why then and why now because really at the end of the day, that's that's what investors are gonna care about and that's gonna be your best chance at success.
0: Yeah, yeah, okay, cool. So I wanna to get to, I do wanna leave some time for questions and I'm looking at the questions that have been upvoted the most here. I'm gonna to rewind to something towards the beginning. Martina, if you're on, uh, instead of me trying to paraphrase your question, do you mind coming off mute and asking Rachel your question?
1: Yeah, sure, thank you for joining us, Rachel so my question had to do with reading about the entrepreneur first program it's indicated that the end of week eight of form about 80 percent of the cohort is already found their co-founder and then the remaining people that have not been able to find a co-founder they have to leave the program so i know like Looking at the website, it's clear that you select individuals that are highly ambitious, very qualified to be successful in the program, but since they had to leave, could you comment on what processes differentiates those that are successful in that form part of the program and those that couldn't uh, advance to the next stage? For sure, great question, and so well researched. It's amazing, Martine. I'm thrilled that, that the word of EF is getting out there. Um, so, so a couple of things. You hit on one thing, which is this idea of success. Who has been successful and not in the program? And when I first joined EF, and um, you know, to really understand the program, I spoke to a bunch of our past customers or so our, our alumni and folks that were successful, and not successful, to, to use your words. And what I learned was that most people actually felt like they were successful whether they ended up getting funded with EF or not because it's a transformational life experience where all of a sudden, maybe you're working in an environment where some people were okay, some people weren't. And then all of a sudden, you know, what I heard from our alumni was you they got to EF and was like, holy crap, these are my people. You know, you can jam on different things. You, you know, potentially have a huge, you know, hard right on where you go from your career perspective. So I'll just speak to the fact that those that don't end up getting funded or end up having a company that they feel um, that they want to pursue, many individuals end up joining our um, alumni companies. So our alumni actually love our, our subsequent cohorts because it ends up being a talent funnel for them. And then since we launched in Toronto, we've had recruiters chomping at the bit to say like, can we see your talent? Can we see your talent? Cause we've vetted the best and brightest in Canada that want to you know, start companies. So we've already pre-vetted a lot of that. So I just wanted to hit on that idea of success versus not, because you know, I'd say the majority of people are not going to be funded. It works out to about 40% that end up getting funded by us at our investment committee, but that doesn't mean it's unsuccessful. So, but to answer your question of what differentiates the ones that end up getting funding versus not, I'd say there's a couple of things. One big mistake that we see a lot of companies make is they stay in teams way too long. So maybe they got along really well with someone, you know, maybe you know, Martina, you and I were paired up and we had so much fun together, but at the end of the day, we didn't have a strong enough right to win and we didn't actually have some of the tough conversations that were that needed to happen. And so what ends up happening is some of that ends up getting backloaded. And so you end up realizing that I'll pick on an example, our values are super misaligned and you realize that two weeks before investment committee and then the team breaks. So it's one example of something that maybe goes wrong. I think another example is people choose not to work on their edge. And then what ends up happening is you have people pitching and when you ask the question why you why now which are not ef questions those are like very common investor questions and um, you know those are those are tough to answer and so you know i think it's pretty safe to say when you stick to your edge and when you're really really honest about pressure testing the problem that you're working on and a potential solution we use the term you know what's your belief based on your edge and then what's that hunch that you want to lean in and test. And when you can do that effectively, you know, I'd say most people have been have been really successful in the program. Great question.
0: I'm gonna go to uh, Priya. Do you mind asking your question?
1: Yeah, for sure. So thank you so much for coming in. I basically just had a question about your experience being a female entrepreneur and just understanding like how you assert yourself in a field that's just so predominantly uh, male dominated. Yeah, great question, and I might answer this one in a less politically correct way. So bear with me as I do that. So I'll, I'll start. To, with... we'll,
0: we'll edit this out, Rachel, if you <laughs> want to edit it out in, in post.
1: Amazing, amazing post. I love that. So so here's what I'd say. Um, it was never something I thought about. It was something that, um, you know, I had delusional naivety to, and I think it was about a year into the starting Five Crowd, all this buzz about females in tech, you know, what we need to think about at the table, how we need to act um, in different things. I think once I started getting that, um, the voice in my head saying like, okay, I'm the only female here, like, ooh, how do I act? What do I need to do? it became a really negative A, imposter syndrome moment and then B, self-fulfilling prophecy when I was second-guessing myself, then therefore that's what was happening in those situations. And I think it was Bram who was like a, m- a month into that like phase that I was going, he was like, Rach, what's going on? I was like, I don't know, I'm a woman in tech. And he's like, okay, who cares? I'm like, oh, good point. And so once I got rid of that um, and kind of got that 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 you know um, voice track, off and actually what we flipped to was the fact that we were co-founders and as, as a prof said to us which we laughed at the time but it's true he's like you guys are very lucky one of you is a female one of you is a male play to your strengths. And what that meant was that there's lots of female and tech experiences that I was able to go and meet and learn from. And then there were also lots of boys clubs where I could have gone and I would have been comfortable, but maybe we just send Bram because that's actually probably a better fit. So I think whether or not you have a co-founder that's male, um, I, I think you can manage without. But but I guess my biggest message is if you put the spotlight on it, at least in my case, it actually became a self-fulfilling prophecy versus just trying to be delusional to it a little bit and and have that, you know, bright eyed naivety um, and stumbling into it as, as, you know, that, that did rarely happen. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you. That's a good question.
0: All right. Zach has a question related to COVID. If you want to go for it, Zach. Yeah. I was just curious in terms of numbers. Um, You know, I, I think there, you can make arguments for both sides, I guess, but, you know, since, since COVID started, uh, have you seen maybe an increase or decrease in interest, you know, in, in Entrepreneur First or entrepreneurship in general, if you have any uh, insight on that?
1: Great question. Um, hmm. So here, here's how I'll answer it. So first off on the investor front, I'll start there, and then I'll go to the to the candidate applicant front. On the investor front, investments are healthy. I, you know, what I've been seeing, you know, as we've been launching in Canada, as I've been, you know, shared, talking to uh, my contacts in the Valley, investments are still flowing. And so there's obviously industries where that's not true. I'd be a little bit, I'd have trepidations around launching something in travel, for example, or retail, for example. Maybe you've got a huge game changing solution based on the changes, but they're industries that talking to my friends that are VCs in the Valley, maybe they're writing those things off in their portfolio and doubling down in other areas. So start on that on the investor front. On the flip side, on the founder front, what I'd say is that the most ambitious people see opportunity in turbulent times right they see the changing and economy they see the change in consumer habits and i think that you know when you when you see those opportunities you know the that's when the minds starts tracing it's like oh wow this shift in behavior is happening how do i tap into it so to give you some specific numbers um in canada we had close to a thousand applications for the 50 spots so i don't have a barometer for previous cohorts but i thought that was that was quite a lot and we did not have heavy marketing up until we had a little bit of press at the end um, right as we were closing our applications. But I I was pretty blown away by that um, because that's a thousand very strong people that want to take a leap like this. You know, one thing that I was seeing was that some people maybe are a bit more risk averse by way of looking for leave of absences so can you, in my world, could I have left to J&J and taken six months and have that security of going back? But, I, you know, I just came off of a call prior to this talking to someone who's interested in our April cohort. And, you know, what she had said was, you know, I'm a strong performer. I could take a leave of absence or I think I'd have an opportunity. Like, so I think there is a bit of a, you know, those, those that have that performance background, there is a bit of confidence that now is the time, if not now, then when? And then I should be able to find an opportunity should I need to go back into the workforce.
0: Great. Thank you. Any advice to your, call it 21, 22 year old self, Rachel, would you have done it differently? Would you have started earlier? Uh, Any advice that you'd give to these? These are arguably the most entrepreneurial students uh, at Ivy who are taking courses and they're sort of self-selecting and saying, I'm interested in learning more about entrepreneurship. Any advice to either them or to your 21 year old self?
1: Stay in touch with me, but that's more me putting that out there because hopefully all of you will go into the workforce and be interested in yeah, down the road, but that's not that's not your question. Um, look, I'd say a couple of things, right? I think um, hmm, there's no substitute for hard work. And I think um, our generation can get a reputation of like wanting to be the CEO in 12 months. And at the end of the day, it takes time to learn stuff. So just have some, on one hand, have some patience that it's gonna take time to learn be a sponge on everything tech, as well as on the commerciality side. On the flip side, I had once been given the um, the feedback, constructive feedback at j that I'm impatient. And I can see that, I've, I've, I'm like high sense of urgency, we've got the three goals for five crowd, why is it taking six months, let's do it tomorrow. On the flip side, one of the things we actually see from an EF perspective is some of our strongest founders have an insane sense of urgency, and they have that impatience. And so what I'd say is that, you know, be a sponge, learn. And if I could go back to that advice that I was given, I I think I would have said to ignore it. And that impatience is what drives speed, it's what drives impact. And then perhaps, you know, the, the last piece to it all is, be very, very focused, you know, Rachel circa 2011, 2012, on just general learning and just always putting myself in you know in in situations where you can just soak up a ton and as soon as you feel like you're getting stale um leave do something else go to go to brazil as i was trying to do with j and j start something go to a different company because our careers are long but they're not that long and the more tools you can assemble in your toolkit you know i think the the better you'll be longer term but stay in touch stay in touch ef circa two years from now (laughs) You've been listening to the Ivy Entrepreneur Podcast. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player or visit ivy.ca forward slash entrepreneurship. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.